I want you to wrap your head around a construct that I deal with still to this day after interviewing Jimmy for close to five years inside prison walls is that every time I speak to him on the phone, I try to imagine in my mind what his world looks like and feels like. What does five life sentences do to your day-to-day life? Not only physically, but psychologically. When you get a call from a federal prison, the time allotted is just under 15 minutes. I'm not sure who made that arbitrary decision, but seems petty. When I talked to Jimmy, it was clear to me that he needed to set the record straight on various issues. The construct that I find fascinating is that Jimmy, for most of his life, decided to stay away from the limelight, to stay away from the media and the press. And now it appears that Jimmy, in talking to me, is racing as fast as he can to unpack all of his stories his insight, and his narratives into these jail phone calls. In the call below, we delve into an article that was written about him in Vibe magazine, an article that he came to regret. Ethan Brown is an incredible journalist and author who has interviewed a lot of gangsters. He's written a lot of books, and Ethan knew this world. Jimmy talks about the thinking behind his decision to do the piece in Vibe magazine, which was published in December of 2005, almost 17 years ago. When we were talking the other day, I went back and read the Ethan Brown article. When you did that article, it seemed like, and correct me if I'm wrong, the purpose of it was sort of to just talk about the whole Quad Studios thing, get it get it on the record and be done with it. Any person I've ever talked to who's worked with Ethan or has or someone's been written by Ethan has never been happy with what he's done. What was your feelings about it? Well, up until then, I, I always felt that um, the best thing to do is just to remain silent on the issue. Ethan Brown had reached out to a publicist and um, and we were mulling over, should I even address the issue and would it go away at that point? And so Ethan, you know, he hit me with the whole, he was going to put it in the New York, the New Yorker. I think that's who he was. He had claimed he was right for at the time. Was yeah. the New York, either New York Magazine, New Yorker. And yeah. so we felt, okay, if we're going to do it for a big magazine like that, let's just get it out the way and hopefully the rumors can subside them. And yeah. so at, at that point, I just, you know, this was the first time I would uh, be talking about it to some extent. But not only that, it was, game was really bubbling at that time. So what I, what he asked me to do, he asked, can he um, accompany me while I was with game? And so he flew down to Florida and I gave him full access to me behind the scenes doing what I do um, as a manager. Then he ended up, after he, he did the interview, he told me he was putting it in, in the Vibe magazine. I could have done a Vibe magazine article with a writer that I was I felt was more compatible to me. Um, sure. I just didn't know how that turned into a, a New York magazine article. 
into a, a vibe um, article. And uh, they're much very different in and, a sense in who they who they speak to. And and there's a lot more. I don't know. I would say journalistic credibility, maybe, um, and I'm not saying Vibe isn't a good magazine, but if you're writing for the New Yorker or a New York magazine, it's a little bit different. Absolutely. And this is when I knew that this this article was a problem. When I went, I went, I had a case in Maryland and um, I had went to trial on it. And the detectives out there made it their business to sit in the lobby with that magazine and had it for all to see. Was giving it to the prosecutor, and it was it was almost like this is a bad guy. We need to convict him on this. And it was it was me and a DJ had gotten to a fight, and they charged me for assault in Maryland while I was on a promo tour with Game. And um, and I, that's when I knew that this article because it came out around either a few months before I started trial on that case or around the time when I was on trial or something but I just remember they had it like every day um, and paraded around with it and it was telling people I was such a bad guy and how dangerous I was and that I, I'm the one who um, had something to do they would never say that I, I, I you know they, they I was accused of the assault, they would be talking about like I was accused of the the, the murder. And um, that's when I knew that that article was the worst thing that I ever did. One theme of Jimmy's story that I constantly battle with is what is true surrounding the rumors, the myth, or even the legend. Jimmy's past and his days as a hustler in Brooklyn did give him a certain aura. I can honestly say, prior to meeting him in person, I had heard the rumors, the gossip, and this was pre-internet, where you could be this sort of looming, mysterious figure. At that time in hip-hop, having those bona fides allowed you to go into worlds that not every hip-hop executive could navigate. For example, Jimmy being from New York, he could manage someone like the game who wasn't shy, flaunting his affiliation to the Bloods. Jimmy could spend time in South Central and understand how to navigate the politics of that. Really, you think it was that, it was that bad of a decision? Yeah, yeah. And and the thing that Ethan had promised me, he would, how he would shape the story. Yeah. He didn't shake the story that way. And, and, and look, man, I, I respect the, the integrity of journalism. But look, man, and, and I've been the victim of people writing things that aren't aren't true. And depending on the writer would be depending on how they write it. It, it just seemed to me, and, and, and he starts the article off saying that I am the uber villain in, in the music industry. And, yeah. and that uber villain seemed like it became magnified 
at that point. Before then, nobody had real access to me. The only thing that I would talk about is the music industry and the things that I've done. And they would write whatever about my past history as far as my arrest or whatever on their own. But it was that article that not only did it get on Boston, not only did I get on law enforcement um, radar, that's when I got on Chuck Phillips' radar at that point also. Something I became obsessed with in this story is can you ever outrun your past if it includes violent crimes? And where does the truth intersect with someone's point of view? Here it is, the worst the worst drug law that they have on the books, they gave it to me. The worst yeah. one. Like, there's no other higher yeah. drug count in the United States of America. Yeah. And, and and I got that. And and you would, like again, like I said in the email, you would have thought that, um, that they were talking about somebody else because for me to run an organization that the way they said I ran it, I would have had to every day be a part of that organization. I would have yeah. had to know the intricate parts of that organization. I would have had to, you know, have some kind of hand in it, especially for the charge. And if you read the the, the element of the charge, that I would have had to been the principal um, leader, manager, in retrospect, I know that them jurors couldn't have put all that together and, and to say that I made $10 million a year or uh, gross that much a year from, from this because I, I wouldn't have been able to do nothing else. If they ever had got the other side of the picture of what I did every day, what I got up and what I went to work and did and the people that I was in touch with and who I rubbed shoulders with, they would have known that there's no way that I could have been some leader of some organization, a bi-coastal organization and, and so on and so forth. There's just no way. And like I yeah. said in the email, I was like, these people, there were times in the trial where I just wanted to get up and said, hold on, hold on, guys, let's pause this for a minute. Who, who are y'all talking about on trial right now? Because it's sure enough, they weren't talking about me. They created a whole other character that didn't even exist, that only existed in the imagination of, of boys and girls <laughs> who believe in, in boogeyman. And they created that for the jury to, they, so skillfully too, they created that and the jury brought into it. What Jimmy is talking about is what is defined as a CCE charge or continuing criminal enterprise. The sexy name for it is the kingpin charge. This is serious business where the DEA and the U.S. attorney can create a narrative wherein Jimmy was the CEO of a large-scale narcotics operation. And like he said, one of the elements of that charge is the government has to prove that you made an upwards of $10 million. When I met Jimmy, I was a little inexperienced as it relates to how cases were built at the U.S. attorney level. I can now say five years later, I've sat in on close to six federal trials start to finish, and I've watched all the elements. In one particular trial in the Southern District, I was signed on as a paralegal so I could have access to the work product that the federal government creates in a federal trial that is handed over to defense attorneys. 
In the last five years, I've witnessed in open court U.S. attorneys fabricating evidence, lying, putting forth informants that lie. And I'll say this, and it's hard to believe. When U.S. attorneys build their criminal cases, they look at them as elaborate stage plays to be scripted, manipulated, and presented to convince a jury who has no idea what the truth is. If every U.S. citizen understood how the federal criminal justice system worked, they'd be horrified. Well, I mean, you know, the thing that sort of struck me in reading some of the interactions with the jurors, and I think I even mentioned this to Leanne, you know, I I read some, I, I don't know what documents it was in, where I think even one of the jurors said that English was his second language. And I'm sitting Let's here- Let's call it from a federal prison. I'm sitting here listening, yeah. reading, reading what's going on in court, and I'm going, I'm having a firm, I'm having a hard time grasping all of this and grasping how they're presenting this case. How is a juror who's probably like a working class person who is not educated in the criminal justice system, how are they even understanding all of this? The other question I have for you, how far back do you think Todd Kaminsky sort of what like put you up on the wall and was like, I want to get this guy. Todd Kaminsky was the U.S. attorney inside the Eastern District that had been hunting James Rosemond for years like a trophy. I'll delve deeper into Kaminsky throughout the series. But again, being in the Eastern District is the equivalent of being in the NBA if you play basketball. The Eastern District of New York is where a lot of mafia trials and investigations take place because the jurisdiction covers Brooklyn. It is also where you see a lot of high profile cases because the Eastern District is where lawyers make a name for themselves. It is the sister to the Southern District or the Sovereign District as it is called. Southern District is like the NBA All-Star Game. All the stars, whether you're a lawyer or a criminal or a journalist, find themselves in the Southern District. Kaminsky did some bizarre things when he was investigating Jimmy. One story I was told is that whenever Kaminsky tried to get informants to rat on Jimmy, he would ask weird questions, like what type of shoes Jimmy wore or what type of watches he collected. What does his apartment look like? Just weird. And if when he was in the Queens County, at the Queens County District Attorney. When he got promoted, he his first order of the day was, I, I wanna investigate this guy. His name been coming up and he, he was reading up on me. That Vibe magazine ended up really by, that Ethan, Ethan Brown had written up on yeah. me was almost like my uh, curse against me because every law enforcement read it and and just like how um, Ethan Brown started the article he was like um, somehow I've became the uber villain in the music business and, and for a fact that that was true Thank you for listening to a bonus episode of Unjust Justice, the James Rosemont story. For more information on the case, please visit www.criminalmindedmedia.com.